You got your life jackets on? You better, because today we're going into the deep waters. Conversation with a Calvinist begins right now. Welcome back to Conversations with the Calvinist. My name is Keith Foskey, and I am a Calvinist. And I am joined today by my friend, Rashad Hendricks, and we're going to be talking about the subject of subordinationism. Hi, Rashad. How are you doing today? Hey, brother. How are you? Uh, and I'm also a Calvinist. Yes. Awesome. Awesome. Sometimes I have non-Calvinists on, and I have to make that distinction, but I am glad to be joined today by another Calvinist. So praise the Lord. Oh, yeah. Amen. Thank you, brother, for having me. I appreciate yes. it. Absolutely. And I wanted to mention to the audience, uh, part of what has brought this about, I was asked several weeks ago if I would be willing to record my book on the Trinity as an audiobook. And the book that I wrote about 10 years ago was called God in Three Persons. And it's not a long book. Uh, it's less than 100 pages, so it's relatively short, but it gives a biblical and historical presentation of the doctrine of the Trinity. And it is available. If anybody's interested, you can uh, go to our church website, sgfcjacks.org slash books, and you can find it there. It's for free if you want to download the PDF and the audiobook that's been recorded by me, or you can go and order a hard copy from our publisher. So in conjunction with that book, what I have decided to do is I asked Rashad to come on today to talk about the subject of subordinationism because we I didn't really get into that in the book. The book is an entry-level, very basic presentation of the doctrine of the Trinity for, I would say, not necessarily new Christians, but Christians who are not familiar with the historical arguments and maybe not able to articulate the doctrine of the Trinity as well as they might like to. The book gives you a very easy to present, uh, very easy to understand presentation of the of the doctrine of the trinity and so that's what it's about but i am aware and i know rashad is aware of a more recent controversy that has been going on especially within reform circles about the question of subordinationism and more specifically the question of how the son and the father and we could even say the holy spirit but particularly between the son and the father the relationship between the Son and the Father in the ontological trinity as opposed to the economic trinity. And let, let me just very quickly explain what that, that means. We talk about ontology. We're talking about the being of God, his, his, his nature, his essence. When we talk about economic trinity, we're talking about the functional trinity, particularly how, how God functions in relation to his creation. And so when we talk about the ontological trinity, we usually say God is one in essence, he is three in person, and those three persons are co-equal, co-eternal. And when we say co-equal, we mean literally they are equal. But subordinationism says there is within the being of the trinity a form of subordination, a form of greater than and less than. And so uh, I've asked Rashad to come on today, and he is one who has studied this subject and uh, has a lot to say. And I want to go ahead and ask you, brother, as, uh, as I've sort of given a basic understanding, can you give us some of, the, some of the ways that people describe this? I know that there's EFS, ESS, and, and those. Can you, can you describe the, the different ways people, people use the term, in case maybe the listeners heard it differently? Yeah, brother, of course. Um, so um, I, I think that um, uh, a few years ago when this debate uh, that you mentioned, uh, 2016, I think every, everybody would trace it back to that year, uh, the quote unquote Trinity debate. So uh, initially, I think a lot of us heard it referred to as the eternal subordination of the sun, or you may have seen the acronym ESS. Um, and then it, it, you still will see that, but it looks like after that point, it kind of went to eternal functional subordination or the acronym, as you mentioned, EFS. And uh, more recently, uh, at least uh, what I've seen is that you've see, seen it referred to as eternal relations of authority and submission, or you'll see the acronym ERAS. Uh, so that's kind of what you will see mostly 
uh, uh, it referred to today, E-R-A-S, Eternal Relations of Authority and Submission. And do you think that the, the changing of the nomenclature is because of a refining of what they're trying to say? Oh, well, you, you'll see uh, that uh, this was my contention. I, I, I would agree with that. Um, but I also believe that when you see something referred to as the eternal subordination of the sun, immediately you'll see red flags pop up in everybody's head uh, for the very reason that you listed. Uh, we know that the son is equal with the father uh, in all ways and the spirit. When you hear something referred to as eternal subordination, that word subordination kind of takes a negative connotation uh, okay. to a lot of us. So it, it went to, as I mentioned earlier, functional subordination. Well, we're, we're talking about just, you know, in function or how they relate uh, to one another. And but the word subordination is still there. So more recently, you see eternal relations of authority and submission. It's a little bit of a, a, a softer play on uh, those former um, of you, uh, ways that they announced it. All right. Yeah, and they, drop, and they dropped the word subordination. Right, right, right. Yeah. So when you hear eternal relations of authority and submission, okay, well, I can kind of, you know, that's a, I can kind of get that. Let, let me listen to see what you're saying. So, um, yeah, subordinationism, when you hear that word, that's, mm, that's a, wow, wait a minute, subordinate? But then you yep. get to eternal relations of authority and submission, that sounds a little soft. Yep. And when we think about God, uh, you know, we have to consider the fact that we are, we, we remain monotheists, as even though we're Trinitarian monotheists, yes. not Unitarian monotheists, we, we are Trinitarian. And, and so we, uh, we have to consider at least that God is God always. And so when someone starts saying, well, God is subordinate to himself or God is subordinate within himself, uh, that begins to take on a question of, of, of the very nature of what we believe God is and, and what we're talking about. And so um, it, it is important, I think, that we clarify our terms. And, and, and I am, I'm, I'm actually glad that there's an attempt to clarify, even though I may still disagree with what they're saying, they at least recognize the, 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 the faulty use of certain terms. So, uh, and when I say they, let me, let me be clear. Uh, and I, and I think you'll agree with me, Rashad, but I'll throw this back to you. Would you agree that there are some people who are on the side of the, uh, e, we'll say ERAS, uh, the, um, that, that would, would remain within the covering of orthodoxy while there are um, others who would be going outside of the, of the umbrella of orthodoxy. Would you, would you agree yeah. with that? Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, yeah. Some of them uh, you, you could look at and clearly say, uh, well, that's a heterodox view, you know, uh, historically, uh, no, they don't fit into orthodoxy or, or what we would consider to be orthodox from a historical standpoint. Uh, they're outside of it. But then you have some who, uh, they may not be fully orthodox if I can use it in that way. Um, but we need to have a little bit more of a conversation to kind of really keep drilling down into what you're, what you're saying. So uh, yeah, I would never put a blanket statement uh, out there about anybody who may hold to ERAS or Eternal Relations of Authority Submission, but the discussion needs to be had to really not, you know, drill down into the nuts and bolts of what they're actually getting at. Okay. So uh, you used a word, I'm going to ask you to define it uh, for our audience. You used the word heterodox. Now, most mm -hmm. of us are familiar with orthodoxy and heresy, orthodoxy mm -hmm. being that which is an alignment, the word orthos being in a line or, or straight, that which is in a line with, with proper uh, uh, theology. Mm -hmm. And then of course, heresy is that which is outside of, of, of the norm of, of, of orthodoxy, but heterodox is, a, is, 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 I know, I know how I use that term. How do you, how do you define that when you say something is heterodox or, or yeah. what, how, how, how do you, how do you think people understand that? Right. I think, I think the simplest way to understand that is, is something that won't necessarily uh, damn someone or something that's not considered uh, damnable heresy that you could rightly point out and say, you are, you are outside of the, 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 historical standards of the faith, you are outside what the Bible declares uh, someone who is saved by Christ to, to, to state or believe. 
Oh, you mean like you mean like like infant baptism? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know. And, and no, no, and I'm, I'm laughing because I'm yeah, going to get I a lot of people brothers, don't like man. that. <laughs> yeah, well, that well, maybe they don't like it, but I mean, listen, it's it's not a damnable. You know, it's it's nothing damnable. You know, you may not agree with it, but okay, that's yeah. fine. Those are our brothers. But yeah, uh, yeah heterodoxy, uh, nothing that would damn someone, yeah. uh, as we would use the word heresy. Just it may be outside of normal orthodox or accepted orthodoxy historically. Okay. From a, from a historical perspective, we would say that subordinationism seems to be at least in part uh, a semi-Aryan view because mm-hmm. the idea is that the father is greater than the son in mm-hmm. his godhood. And mm-hmm. therefore, like Arius said, the, the son is a created God. Now, now we, we have to be clear. They're not saying the son is created, but they are saying that he's lesser in some form or fashion that he has to, mm-hmm. that he is submitting to. And, and I've heard some people call eternal subordination uh, semi-Aryan. Uh, mm-hmm. Now that may be, again, I'm not trying to be unfair. I'm just stating some, some statements that I have read and seen. Um, what are your thoughts on that? That it's a semi-Aryan view. Do you think that's that's too that's too harsh? Because we know Arianism is a tremendous heresy. Right. So, uh, what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, yeah, I've seen that also thrown around, and I would I would personally be very very careful to use that. Okay. One, one okay. thing that I keep in mind uh, whenever we have these debates or or discussions about about the nature of the Trinity, first of all, we have to understand that we're finite people. You know, attempting to understand as much as possible, though not we won't fully be able to. We're attempting to understand an infinite being. Yeah. So it it, it, stand, it it would behoove us to be very graceful in how we conduct ourselves with one another when we're discussing these things. So I would personally be hesitant to use the semi-Aryan viewpoint. Okay. Um, now, it's it. I will say that it, it comes from that line historically, uh, but it doesn't rise to the level of Arianism. And I don't believe that it, that it rises to semi-Arianism, but it is something that, that needs to be discussed and, and talked about and debated and poured over uh, as we've seen historically in the church. But um, I, I would definitely uh, not rise it to that level, me personally. Uh, I wanna make sure that I'm, I'm being graceful um, no, and not uh, just throwing out charges uh, for something that I may not necessarily see, but it, but it is an, an error, uh, and it does need to continue to be de- debated and discussed. Okay, uh, I have a few things here that I brought in my notes, and I, and I want to just, uh, and I know you probably have a few things as well. So I want to just begin. Um, as I was looking through, I found some things actually from Wayne Grudem himself. Uh, this is. Wayne is, uh, most of you who are listening to this would probably, if you are familiar with Wayne Grudem, you would be familiar with his systematic theology. I remember when I first became a Calvinist, which would have been, there was about a two-year period of study you know, between 2004 and 2006. And during that time, everybody was telling me, oh, you got to you got to read Wayne Grudem. You got to read, read sorry, <laughs> you got to read Wayne Grudem. Yeah, and so I said three times. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and I, I've read, I've not read his systematic theology completely, but I have read portions of it. And of course, there are some parts that I think are helpful. Um, some parts, of course, I don't agree with. Uh, he tends to be more of a continuationist. I tend to be more of a cessationist. So obviously there's some differences there. Um, but overall, a lot of people have gleaned many good things from him. And so uh, uh, this is a man who has at least had a, a fairly decent amount of respect within uh, Calvinistic circles. However, on this issue, he does seem to be taking the position that some of us would say is the wrong position, which is the, the, the functional subordination or the ERAS uh, position. And um, I want to just say one of the things, and this is... Um, this is from his systematic theology. This is on page 250. He says, eternal relations of submission and authority after discussing how the persons of the Trinity acted in history. Oh, I'm sorry, excuse me. I'm reading the wrong thing. He said, he says specifically, this is a direct quote. These relationships talking about the relationships of the father and of the son and of the spirit are eternal, not something that only occurred in time. 
And the reason why I bring that up is because I think you and I would agree that in the incarnation, there was a form of submission. Would you, would you agree with that? 100%. That that's, that's the rub. Yeah. Yeah. It's about the incarnation. That's right. So we would say that in the incarnation, Christ is sent. He is given a, uh, a, a, uh, mission and his mission he says specifically is to do the will of him who sent me so he speaks of the father as the one who is giving him his marching orders and he's fulfilling what the father has commanded and he says in a sense he's doing it under the power of the spirit because we remember of course this the story of the of the blasphemy of the holy spirit jesus says you know you see me do these miracles and you can speak against me but when you when you apply what i'm doing to the devil you're blaspheming the Holy Spirit because it's the Spirit through whom this power is 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 being exercised. So we see the Trinity at work in the works of Christ, but yet there seems to be at least a distinguishable uh, way of saying, okay, we have the Father sending the Son, we have the Son doing the work of redemption, we have the Spirit doing the the application of redemption through the process of regeneration and indwelling. And so in all of that, we could see, as what we discussed earlier, is the economic trinity, the distinctions within the, the three persons. Um, but you would say, and I think I would agree, but I want to make sure I'm saying it correctly, uh, as, as you would, would you say, Rashad, that that, is, that, that only applies uh, after the incarnation or within the process of the incarnation? This is not something that applies to God in eternity. Yeah, I would agree with that uh, wholeheartedly. And um, I think uh, even from the, the very beginning, I think you hit on it a little bit when you talked about how we are monotheists. And um, I think from the very beginning of scripture, we see that. We see it in Deuteronomy with the Shema. You know, hero Israel, the Lord, our God is one. Um, so from the very beginning, we are, are being made to understand that fact that God is one. Uh, the being of God is one, one, one being, one will that the three uh, persons share. But when you get to the incarnation, this changes the game, you know, because the unique, because of the uniqueness of Christ. You know, there's never been anyone like Christ, past, present, or future. Why? Because he has two natures. Mm-hmm. Christ has two natures united in one person: human nature and divine uh, nature. And so now when we see that, we are we have to distinguish whenever we discuss Christ, whenever we look in the gospel passages, whenever we see certain things, we have to distinguish if we want to be good biblical exegetes. And what I mean by that is um, when you look in the gospels, you see evidences of the dual language used to, to reference Christ in the gospel. So you see um, him referred to, or you see his, Humanity highlighted when you look at passages like John eleven thirty five, where it says he wept, you know, John 4, 6, where it says that he was tired, uh, Luke 2, 52, where it says he increased in wisdom and stature, you know, yeah, this which, is mind-blowing. Yeah, yeah, I've thought about that passage a lot, that he increased in wisdom and stature. Yeah. This is this has to be speaking of his humanity, obviously right, not right. his divinity. Yep. Right, right. So we're made to distinguish. And then you even, it's more in Mark 4, 38 through 40, you see him sleeping. You know, what, how? We see in the Old Testament where God doesn't sleep or slumber. Matthew 18, you see him be astonished and amazed and marvel at things. You know, how is it that God in human flesh is amazed and marvel? He knows all things. He's ordained and decreed all things. But on the other hand, in the gospel passages, you see how he forgave sins. Well, how how is that possible? A mere man can't forgive sin. You know, he knew what was in man's heart. You know, he healed infirmities of people who who had illnesses and infirmities from from birth. He knew the future. He casted out demons. He commanded demons. You know, these are not things that mere man could do. So I, I bring that up just to say, that when whenever we read about Christ in the New Testament, you, you could even carry it on in the epistle. I mean, in fact, we have to. You know, in order to be good biblical exegetes, we must distinguish when we look at him. Why? Because he's unique in that he has two natures. And if you want to understand the text properly, you would do that. Okay. So we would say, um, or 
you would say then, and I think I would agree with you, I'm just making sure we're saying the right thing, that the submission of Christ is in regard to his humanity? Yes, the submission is in regards to his humanity. We, we okay. would all agree with that because you will see uh, some of the, the, the brothers who hold to E-R-A-S admit that. Okay. The only error there with them is that they say that that, that is a reflection of something that we see eternal. Gotcha. And, gotcha. um, and it, it, it's not the case. And so it, it, as you were saying that, it reminded me specifically of the, the, the Carmen Christi, you know, in Philippians 2, which tells us that he uh, submitted himself in that sense. He, he humbled himself by becoming a man and taking right. on the, the, the death and the cross and those things, because that was something that he voluntarily did as the second mm -hmm. person of the Trinity. I do want to go back though. You 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 made a statement and 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 it, and it talks about the 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 function. You said three persons but one will. Mm -hmm. um, expand on that a little bit when you talk about three persons and one will. So so um, when Jesus talks about the doing the will of Him who sent me when He's on the earth, you're you're are you addressing then His human will as a as in in relation to the Father's will or or. I just want to, I just want to clarify that statement. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, absolutely. Good question, brother. I think um, that uh, when you see uh, him reference the father's will, I think you could properly understand that as being the, the divine will, the single divine will. I think you see an example of that uh, in the garden of Gethsemane, uh, which nearly brings me to tears every time I read. And when you say, when Christ says, well, not my will, but your will be done. Now you, you would look at that and you would see, uh, some people say, well, see there, look, you know, he's he's saying that he he has a will separate from the father. So it's three different wills in the Godhead, which is tritheism. Uh, I think you mentioned that in your, your audio book. Yep. So, again, if we want to be good biblical exegetes, we must distinguish. So when we see Christ reference my will as opposed to the father's will, well, then we could take that to mean that he's referencing his human will bringing it into subjection to the one single divine will. Okay, gotcha, so gotcha. Uh, when we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's how we, we ought best uh, understand that his human will being in subjection to the one divine will. Okay. And this was actually something that, that, that comes to a point that I have made, and I would maybe be saying it a little bit differently and, 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 and uh, hope, hopefully would not be, uh, myself falling into error, but this is when I've been asked the question because um, I was I, I gave a talk at Tim Stewart's church. You, you know Tim, Pastor Tim? Uh, I don't. Not, not oh, okay. He's a counterculture Baptist church. He's on the west side. Sweet, sweet okay. brother. <clears throat> and he had. Um, they used to do a. Uh, it was like a monthly theology uh, event that they would have, and they'd have different speakers come in and talk about things. Well. This was many years ago, and uh, him and John Sweat. I've had John Sweat on the show. I don't know if you know John Sweat. He yeah. was he, him and him and John were doing this monthly theology gathering, and basically the the what happened was he said, "Well, I want you to come talk about the Trinity." So I did, and and I basically gave an overview of what oh, I had. Oh, nothing, book. no big deal. Just come talk about the Trinity. No yeah, big well, deal. <laughs> well, 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 he knew that that was uh, something that I that you know I had written on. So uh, so he asked me to come, and I did, and we and I talked about the Trinity. Well. Afterwards, he gave about a 20-minute time of question and answer, and that was the first time I remember, and again, this was this was years ago. This is well before 2016, uh, I think, but this was somebody asked the question of, you know, the, the question of subordination. They didn't say the word subordinationism, but basically it was the question of, you know, is the father and the son relationship in, in eternity, does that make the father and the son on it on two different levels you know does that put the father above the son or the father in the sense uh greater than the son because of those very titles and in fact that's one of the arguments that wayne grudem makes is even in the titular examples of father son you have the example of the greater and the lesser or the or the or the uh the 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 one who is sub, sub, in a sense subordinate to the other and so it was a good question. And, and my answer, and again, this may be overly simplistic. So, uh, you know, I, I, I'll let the listener be the judge. But my answer was, uh, when we think of the father and the son, we cannot think that either one of them has any imperfections. And therefore, 
we cannot think of the father and the son ever wanting something different than the other in, in, in their divine nature, because the father and the son have a perfect nature. And therefore, if the father desires, the son will also desire because it's the, it's the perfect thing to desire and therefore sub subordinationism in that sense, in my, in my mind becomes unnecessary because it's not as if one has to submit to the other because there's never a time where either one would have a difference of thought or opinion or desire because there's, and, and I, this is what you were saying with the one will, there's one perfect desire, one perfect will. And if either one of them were to say something wrong, he would cease to be God or think something wrong or, or desire something wrong. And I know that's sort of, that's where it gets kind of uh, uh, janky because you start thinking. Well, yeah. Uh, well, all analogies break down at some point, especially sure. when you talk about the Trinity. So yeah, that's not. A, yeah. But, but the idea of one having an imperfect desire, yeah. Because that, because they, they, part of the idea of submission, like if I think of submission between myself and my wife or myself and my children, and that's something that's often brought up is the, is the connection between the father and the son and the husband and the wife. I don't know if you've, if you've seen that, but it's, it's in that book. Yeah. That group yeah. Book. yeah. Yeah. That the, this, that, the, that the, the connection is you got God, the father, God, the son, well, they're equal, but still, in a relationship of subordination in the same way the, the husband and the wife are equal, but still in the same position of subordination. Mm -hmm. The problem with that is that there's a necessity of subordination with the husband to the wife, because the wife could desire something that is, that is opposed to her husband. And therefore the husband has to have the authority to, to, to lead in such a way. And she has to have the responsibility to submit in such a way because there could be a conflict of will, but because within the Godhead, there cannot be a conflict of will. I think that at a certain point, this argument becomes almost a, 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 a you know, a, a, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin because it, 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 it there cannot be. And tell me if you think that's too simple, I mean, that there cannot be well, a distinction within, you know, that. Yeah. Well, it's the unity of the will. You know, yeah. I mean, it's a real, I mean, it's a real unity, you know, uh, and I know a lot of people liken the Trinity to a community where you have these three persons who are kind of just all there spinning in a circle and they all have different wills. They always just happen to agree. But no, it's something much more than that. You know, it's greater than that. The unity with the Trinity is because the three share the one divine will. You know, and they will, like you said, they it's not possible for them to will anything differently from the other person because they share that one divine will. And so yeah. you could take that to say, you know, uh, there, there, there'll never be uh, an instance where we would ever have an uh, authority or a submission relationship in the one divine will for numerous reasons. Well, how can you have an authority submission in a one divine, it's just one will. What is the one will submitting to? You know, uh, what is the one will uh, in subjection to? Can God be in subjection to Himself? You know, and uh, so you will also see in the uh, in the Grudem book, you will see in some stuff uh, written by Bruce Ware, uh, where the Father gets final authority. You know, and I think that's very problematic. The Father's receiving some greater authority than the Son, but we're talking about the the one being of God. So yeah, when you impose those humanly analogies onto the divine being, it's going to break down the one you just mentioned. Uh, and it's going to break down hard into air. The one you mentioned about uh, the, the, the father being like the husband and the son being like the wife and the Holy Spirit being like kids. Yeah. And he admits in there, well, this is not stated explicitly in the Bible. And I'm not saying that anything has to be explicitly stated in the Bible because doctrines that we hold to may not be explicitly stated in the Bible. But for those purposes there, I think that's very telling. You know, we just can't draw that, that we can't draw that out of the text. You know, that's not a uh, good. Yeah, it still has to come, still has to come from the text. Yeah. I agree with that. It has to be you see it. good and necessary inference, right? Yeah. 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 Amen. Yeah. All right. So I was looking at an article from uh, the Gospel Coalition, which is not my favorite publication, just to be clear. Same. Yeah. 
but but uh but sometimes you know they'll, they'll uh you know even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while so <laughs> absolutely but this is uh the gospel coalition put out an article on this subject and they were just distinguishing between men like bruce ware and uh who hold to efs and and like kevin giles who denies efs and they were discussing augustine and they were discussing a quote by augustine and let me see if I can get it here. Both of them, both of them hold that this quote affirms their position. Um, let me see here. The distinction of persons is constituted precisely by the differing relations among them, in part manifested by the inherent authority of the father and inherent submission of the son. I'll say that again. The distinction of persons is constituted precisely by the differing relations among them, in part manifested by the inherent authority of the Father and inherent submission of the Son. So that's the quote by Augustine, and both men are saying, this affirms my side. And I know you're not looking at it, so it might be a little unfair to ask you to, to, to uh, but but. I think that's part of the issue is, is we're all looking at the same data. We're all looking at the same things, the same quotes, and yet we're coming to different uh, conclusion. It's almost like the Calvinist Arminian debate. You know, yeah. uh, we, we have to say, you know, I know some Calvinists who would say, well, the Arminian just isn't reading his Bible. Well, I would say he's misunderstanding it, but I'm, I'm not going to say he's not reading it. Uh, you know, right. I, I want to be fair to my Arminian brothers and say, you know, they're, they, they I, I think they're missing some things in, in the translation or understanding, but, um, but, uh, but I'm not going to belittle their integrity and in saying they're not trying. Um, God is the one who opens our eyes to truth. God is the one who helps us understand but um, just hearing that quote, um, was there anything in it that jumped out at you as you were listening to that quote by Augustine? Yeah, I know a lot of a lot of them. A lot of those those brothers will read. They will read those quotes and um, use it as fuel for for their position. Um, but I, but I think you I think in a lot of those quotes, and I haven't read that that from Augustine, so I can't speak I specifically on that, but. Just to hear the word manifest, you know, when we think of the, that word manifest, we think of something that come comes to fruition, something that comes to being, yeah, or something that happens in the economy. Yeah. So I can understand why Kevin Giles, uh, who who wrote a fantastic book on on this whole thing that we're talking about anyway, uh, so I can understand why he would adopt that statement as confirmation or or support for his position, uh, because of that that usage of the word manifest. Um, and like we talked about earlier, I mean, all of us would agree, ERAS uh, proponents and opponents, that there is submission. Yep. So we we could very, yeah, I can understand why they would look at that as support, and I can understand why guys would look at it for support. But yep. what we need to nail down is, is this submission eternal? Is this an inter eternal reality within the being of God? Or is this something that is just made manifest using Augustine's uh, word, uh, made manifest by the incarnation? Yeah, and that's and what I think. I think the word that Bruce Ware would key in on is the word inherent. So it's like two yeah. words, right? Like yeah, we would yeah. we would say the manifest is what makes the the distinction because it's mm -hmm. manifested in time. Yeah. Um, but uh, somebody like uh, Ware or Grudem would see that and they would say. Well, yeah, but it's inherent. So it's not just in the manifestation, but it is in the nature. If I say something's inherent in something, that mm -hmm. means it's in its nature. Right. And so, yeah, I could see how both sides would, would grab onto that, that quote by Augustine. And, um, and, and so I want to, but even uh, with that, if I can please just jump in quickly. No, please, sorry, please. Yeah. Yeah. But even with that, when you hear the word inherent, I'll agree with that also because it will be inherent with its human nature. Gotcha. And I think okay. that's one of the things that we, you know, we lose sight of again. I, and I, I hate to keep harping on it, but, you know, I think it is upon us to just to understand that Christ was made like us in each and every way, except without sin. Yeah. So uh, whatever is true of humanity now is true of him. Yeah. Again, except without sin. I want to keep saying except without sin. I don't want to be in it. No, no, no. I get, I get yeah, it. Yeah. And, and, so you know, I, yeah. I would say maybe um, what, and, and 
I hope you wouldn't disagree with this, but maybe maybe I'm I would say it slightly different. I would say everything that was in uh, true of Adam is true of Christ mm-hmm. when he was created. Yeah, because I think that I think that sums up the sin part. Yeah, exactly. Because yeah, Adam yeah, was created yeah. without sin. Jesus right. came into the world without sin. Yeah. Um, and uh, we that's why he's called the second Adam or the last Adam. You know, we have yep. the opportunity to see a new and better Adam. Uh, that's right, brother. Yeah. In the person of Christ. All right. So um, moving along, looking at uh, Wayne Grudem in, in a uh, in a paper I found of his, he has 10 arguments or rather no 12 arguments. We're not, we're not going to go through all of them, but I, I do want to um, just hear your thoughts and sort of how you would respond if somebody said these to you. OK, if somebody said here, here, here's why I hold to E-R-A-S. Here's why I hold to eternal relationship or eternal relations and submission uh, in the father and the son. Um, the first one, and, and I think we've already addressed this, but again, it, 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 this is you and me at a coffee table at Starbucks, and I'm, a e, I'm not, but I'm saying in, that, in, this, in this conversation, I'm the ERAS advocate. You're the mm-hmm. advocate of, uh, of full equality in the Godhead in eternity. Um, and so we are, we're having this conversation, and I say this. Uh, Rashad, the father's authority and the son's submission is indicated in the names father and son. That's his first argument, that that, that the very name father and son, which we would agree, I think, is an eternal designation, not just uh, you don't believe in. Yeah, we don't believe in incarnational sonship. Mm -hmm. Okay, because I was interested to find out years ago, and I think you probably know this, that, that MacArthur held to that for a time. Yeah. That MacArthur held to what yep. was known as incarnational sonship, but now holds to the view of eternal sonship. And I always use that yes. as an example of how a good, solid theologian can change if he is presented with good, solid yeah. reasons. And so mm-hmm. MacArthur is an example to all of us in that being willing to make that change. Yeah. Um, okay, so Amen. we both hold to eternal sonship. Yes, but, but, without but how question. Do, Okay, so how does eternal sonship, because this is essentially, I think, the heart of the argument, how does that mm-hmm. not then indicate eternal distinction and submission? Yeah, well, I think the, the trouble that you run into uh, taking that position would be that you're saying that the father has a different quality about himself than the son does. Okay. In saying that the father has greater authority than the son. But the scriptures tells us that God has all authority, power, might. He's almighty. So when you start breaking it out to these different levels of authority within the Godhead, then that betrays the, the, the scriptures of God being almighty. So how how can we have different authorities? Is he almighty? Is he not? You know, on if you hold that position on one hand, you can say he is. On the other hand, you can say, well, no. No, because you're saying that the son has a lesser authority. And the spirit has an even less authority. I, I feel kind of bad because we're all, it's almost like we're relegating the spirit. To, we don't even talk about the Holy Spirit anymore, you know? Because, yeah, it's like, it's like yeah. the philoquy clause never happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, you know, and, and, and going further from there, you know, that's the other part of the argument, I think, is what distinguishes the person's in, you know, because the, you just said that the ERAS uh, proponents would say, well, see, he, he's a father. He has fatherly authority. The son is distinguished because he's a son. He has lesser authority. He submits. And then the Holy Spirit submits to them both since he's breathed out by both. And he just kind of does whatever they say, you know, each. But historically, that's that's not the case. And even more importantly, biblically, that's not the case. What, what we know is that the, what distinguishes is the eternal relations of origin how uh, we will say that the father is unbegotten God, the son is begotten God, and the spirit proceeds from them both. That is what uh, distinguishes the person. Has nothing to do about some some, uh, assumed levels of authority that we can kind of just grasp from from our creation and apply it back. But that is what truly distinguishes the person, the persons. Uh, other trinity so i would say uh just to sum that up uh, if if that was posed to me well is god almighty or not is he all authoritative or not you know he either is or he isn't and they're trinitarians so they would have to say yes i say well where do we have room then for different levels of authority within the godhead yep it's not there 
Yeah, and and you did make a, an important uh, distinction there when you talked about Christ being begotten. We do make a distinction of of uh, God the Father is neither begotten nor created. The Son is begotten, not created. This is mm-hmm. uh, Nicene Orthodoxy defining the yeah. difference between the begetting of the Son and uh, generation. We would we would say He's mm-hmm. not generated or or created as as we would. Uh, as we would think of him not existing at a certain point of time and then existing, which is of course the Arian view, which is that Christ came into being, uh, was created by the father to be the creator of the world. And then of course the spirit proceeding. And, and, um, that is a, that is a, uh, uh, we think about the term begotten God, you know, that, Mm -hmm. that, that one of the, I forget the text, but there's a text where the textual variant says, you know, in, in the, in the King James, it says only begotten son, but in the uh, more modern text, because of the textual variant, it says the only begotten God. We hear the word begotten God. That 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 rings in our ears as really powerful and strange. But yet, that's what the orthodox position has been: that Christ is Amen. begotten, but not created or not made. Begotten, yeah. not made. John one okay. eighteen. Yeah. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, He is explained. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Amen. All right, so uh, we're gonna just a couple more of these Wayne Grudem ones, and I know I, I don't know if you brought something you wanted to share today, some some quotes or anything, but I, and I, I don't want to overlook those. But let me ask oh, you. Oh no, a couple no, more. that's all. Yeah, you you. This is good. Yeah. Okay. I didn't well, want to bring too too many quotes. No, I so. got you. I got you. But but I, I think uh, I think anything we share today would be helpful. So mm-hmm. here is uh, another one. Again, there are twelve. We're not going to go through all twelve, but. The, the, the second one, the argument of Grudem, is that the father's authority and the son's submission is evident prior to creation. And the argument that he uses, because I've just got the 12 here, but I remember reading through in the paper, the argument that he uses is that the son is sent in, in before the foundation of the world. He, he refers to the cross as, a, as an action that happened before the foundation of the world and the son being sent before the foundation of the world. And he would say, see, it's not tied to the incarnation, but actually precedes the incarnation in time because this, and again, I'm trying, I'm I'm trying to be as fair as I can to his argument. So I'm not making, I'm not, I'm not agreeing with him. I'm just trying to make his argument as I believe he would say uh, that you have the son prior to the incarnation acting on the will of the father. And so that's proof that it's not only within the confines of the incarnation so what do we how do we respond to that yeah and i and i think that's getting down to something else uh about uh the missions uh you know how how we see i mean it's still economy you know how we see god revealed uh in his creative works um it was more properly it could be termed a doctrine of appropriations uh meaning that uh, certain works uh, of the Trinity terminate on a certain person in a specific way. So, which is why we see the son sent to die. You know, the father didn't die on the cross. The spirit didn't die on the cross. The son it was determined that he would be the one die on the cross. The father, he elected. It was determined that he would be the one who elected. And the spirit regenerates and seals. So you see certain works attributed to certain persons of the Trinity in a specific way. But it's still the economy in view, you know. Um, we still we just don't see it uh, in the Old Testament. Uh, this eternal relation of authority and and submission within within the Godhead, you know. But we we can only see from uh, uh, the economic standpoint, you know, how things are revealed to us uh, in in the missions of the persons of the Trinity. So, um, yeah. Th- again. <laughs> You know, if you don't understand that what distinguishes the persons is what we mentioned before, how uh, the father is unbegotten God, the the son is begotten God, the spirit proceeds. As the scriptures declare, um, we're going to have trouble whenever we try to fit our view into what we want it to be. Gotcha. Gotcha. And when we think about that, even prior to creation, when it's referring to the father and the son and the cross, when it says, you know, he is the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, mm-hmm. even though that is outside of time in, in the sense of prior to, 
time being a thing time prior to the creation of time. We're still yeah. looking at it, as you said, in an economic sense, because it's still in relation to what will happen. This is not right. something that's happening within the Trinity distinguishable from creation, but in relation to creation. So we're still looking at something that relates to creation, even if it happened before the world was created in the sense of in the mind of God or in the, in the plan of God, it's still there. And I'm glad you did say what you did, because when we talk about things like patripassionism, which is the idea that the father died on the cross, that, 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 that puts a distinguish, uh, that puts a, a flattening out of the Trinity where we, where we're not able to distinguish. And then, so like, um, one of the things I often, uh, you know, I know that, I know that there are passages that talk about Christ being within us, but specifically we talk about the Holy spirit indwelling us. Jesus says, I go away. The spirit will come, you know, the, the, the comforter. And that is the one who actually is our, our empowerment, our indwelling is the person of the Holy spirit. And would you agree with me that, that Christ in the incarnation uh, still, still resides as God and man today. Yes, absolutely. Okay. okay. Uh, yeah, and I and I think we can see an illusion. Uh, well, not an illusion. I think we see it in the text. Um, First Corinthians fifteen, First uh, Corinthians eleven, and ironically, First Corinthians fifteen is a text that the ERAS proponents will use to buttress their their support about how, um, uh, you know, God will, he, Christ will be subjected to God uh, and, and everything will be all in all. Yep, Again, yep, the yep. economy is in view. You know, that the context of that passage is about the resurrection and Christ being the first fruit of many who will come. Well, the being of God can't die. So automatically, you're, you're, you know that you're discussing his humanity. Once yep. again, the we distinguish. So when you look at that passage, you can look at it as Christ being exalted as the federal head over all the ones that he has redeemed and placed right there, to, uh, seated right there at the right hand of God. Again, that has that has nothing to do with his, his deity. He has always been God. He has always reigned. He never stopped reigning at any point in time, even while he was on earth. But according to his humanity, that's a reality. So, um, yeah, even today, uh, he resides as the God man. Interceding yep. on behalf of his people. Uh, he didn't just die and then jettison his flesh. If he just jettisoned his humanity, we're not redeemed. Yep. Who's interceding for us? You know, who who understands and was tempted in all ways as we were yet without sin? Well, he, he just came and put on a human suit and died and rose up. and like, I'm out of here. No, no more humanity for me. No, he will forever be uh, the God man to intercede for his people. Yep. And, and that's interesting because that's number 10. What you just addressed actually comes in. His, his argument number 10 is the father's authority and the son's submission is giving the son authority to rule over the nations. That's talking about what you were talking about in the first Corinthians passage. But that's interesting that they would cite that because that's actually a very common passage used by the Jehovah's Witnesses because their argument is Christ isn't inherently authoritative over the nations, but he must be given that authority because they are seeing Christ in his humanity as being his, that's his nature. They don't see the God uh, nature. And, and so, yeah, it's interesting that that's, that's one of the, uh, that's one of the arguments and, and you, yeah. and you went right there that, and, yeah. and the next one too, the father's authority and the son's submission after the final judgment and for all eternity. So they would say that the son is, is not only in submission to the father before creation, obviously eternity doesn't have before and after, but you know, you understand what I mean? I eternity past. We yeah. have the, the son is in submission to the father in eternity past and the son is in submission to the father in, in eternity going forward. And mm -hmm. so, uh, and they're making that argument based on the, the first Corinthians passage and, and other passages like it that talk about what's going to happen in the future. And again, looking at that from that perspective, I would say Christ was incarnate and he is he is the God man even now. And I believe will be the God man forever um, uh, because he, uh, you know, he will he will live forever with us and we will have him uh, uh, with us. So um, that's a uh, so so the so the economic sense of the Trinity uh, continues on because his flesh continues on. Yep. 
Yeah. Amen. Absolutely. Yep. yep. You got to, you got to, we distinguish. That's what they said back in the, um, in the early church. And that's how it just came down. We, I mean, and it, I've said it before a thousand times, but we, we, we have to distinguish or else we'll go wrong somewhere. Yep. Yep. We have to make as, uh, uh, and again, I'm quoting Dr. White, but he says, you know, uh, uh, well, no, I, maybe it isn't Dr. White. One of, one of the, one of the guys I listened to, he says, you know, as it is a, no, it was Sproul. It was Dr. Sproul. He says, mm-hmm. as it is a, uh, as it is a woman's, uh, prerogative to change her mind. So it is the theologian's prerogative to make distinctions. <laughs> yeah. That's it. Yeah. 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 I miss him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. So, uh, did you, did you happen to say, have anything that you brought today that you wanted to add to the conversation before we begin to, uh, to maybe draw this up? I have, I have one thing we're going to end with, but Want to give okay. you, throw it to you real quick. Yeah, um, I, I think uh, we've already kind of touched on a little bit, a little bit of it. Um, and you mentioned this passage earlier, Philippians two, um, about the the assuming of the human nature. And I think Hebrews five is another important passage where uh, the language is intentional. It says that he became obedient. You know, so he became something that he never was before. That's a good you know, point. Yeah. Uh, so if Listen, here, here's the fact, and this is what I tell people, you know, what is special about the incarnation if Christ just was coming to do what he was made or supposed to do? If he was already eternally obedient and in eternal subjection to the, the father, well, he didn't do anything special. He just did what he was supposed to do, yeah. you know, but what makes the incarnation of God so special is that he became what he was not. You know, he became obedient. You know, he suffered and bled for his people. You know, he redeemed his people, raised on the third day, seated at the right hand of the father. He became something that he was not. Mm. And that is what makes the incarnation so special. It's not special if he was doing what he was supposed to do because he's just a son who just, you know, under the authority of his father. There's nothing special about the incarnation. He did what he was supposed to do. I mean, do we get props for doing what we're supposed to do, you know? So, I mean, he did what he came, became what he was not. And that is submissive and obedient to the father. And and I think uh, even from the very beginning, uh, and I hope you see how this ties in uh, uh, the creator creature distinction. I think that is something that is very important to the conversation and, um, I've been just, this is something that I've been pondering for a little while here since this thing has been going on. Genesis 1-1, what does it say? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Boom. Automatically, we're introduced to an authority submission relationship. We were created by this divine being whose nature is not like ours. Amen. You know, uh, Psalm 50 uh, talks about uh, how God uh, will will, uh, crush his enemies. There'll be none to deliver. What does he say in that in that passage in Psalm 50? You thought that I was like you. You know, in Acts 14, verse 15, uh, Paul and Barnabas, uh, the people there uh, were starting to liken them to Zeus and Hermes. And he said, wait a minute, we're men of like nature as you. So when you look back at Genesis 1-1, see that you were created by God. Genesis chapter 2, he creates man. And what does he do after he creates man? He commands them. Creator creature distinction. God is other. We are are, uh, in a whole other class from him. And so to posit any type of authority submission relationship within the Godhead, where it only resides with the creator and his creatures is something that we really need to be careful of. Uh, The only authority submission relationship that we are in is creator and creature. The creator commands, demands, the creature submits. We cannot find authority submission within the one single divine being. It's just not, it's it's not there. It is not proper to him. You know, it belongs between the creator and the creature. And so, um, yeah, brother, I just hope this uh, discussion continues to to go on. It's worthy. You know, it's about the Trinity. We're like you mentioned at the beginning at the outset, this is deep, deep waters. But it's worthy and it's rewarding, you know, to, to see God for how he truly is and to see how, you know, he is other. I mean, he does not have a nature like us. How amazing is that? 
you know, he is our authority. We submit to him. That is not a reality within the divine being. And that is why you see in Hebrews 5 and Philippians 2 about how Christ became obedient. He became like us. He lived the law perfectly in thought, deed, action, whatever you want to see. He did that for his people. Amen. And he submitted himself to God. Because as far as it goes with humanity, humanity is in that relationship with God. God is not in an authority submission relationship with himself. It's just not found in the text, brother. So um, it, it's more that I can say on that, but that, that's really it uh, from my standpoint. You hit on a lot of the stuff, so I'm glad we were on the same page with that. Amen. That sounded like you're getting into preaching mode. Man, that was, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, yeah, it's something near and dear to me, man. I, 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 and I know even those brothers who hold the ERAS are seeking to honor God, just like we're seeking to honor God. Uh, but just like we see with church history, debates went on and on and on over the centuries. And I just hope this one continues, you know, uh, because it's worthy. We're talking, we're talking about God. So, Amen. Well, I'm going to draw us to, unless you have something else, I want to draw I'm, us I'm to. I'm good, brother. Question. Yeah, I've talked right. enough. No, no, no. I appreciate it. I, I, like I said, I enjoyed that part uh, a lot. I want to mention here, this is from the OPC. Now, the OPC is Orthodox Presbyterian Church. Now, we don't agree with everything they have to say. Uh, again, they're they're out there sprinkling babies, <laughs> but <laughs> but, uh, but <clears throat> they addressed this issue in a paper that they published, and it was available on their website. So as I was doing a little digging around, I found it and I really liked it. Um, and I just want to read a portion of the end of their paper. Now this is available at opc.org. You can just look it up on the subject of eternal submission. Um, <clears throat> but it says this. We of the OPC hold that the word of God clearly teaches the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and that there is no such thing as degrees or levels of deity and that all attributes of God belong equally to all three persons of the Trinity. We believe that the Father, Son, and Spirit have one nature or substance and that they have one power and authority, referencing the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553. The problem is this. If authority over the Son is an essential, not an incidental attribute of the Father, and subordination of the Father is an essential, not an incidental attribute of the Son, then something significant follows. Authority is a part of the Father's essence or nature, and subordination is part of the Son's essence and nature. And that would mean that the essence of the Father is different from the essence of the Son, but we profess that though there are three distinct persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, yet the persons are not separate, are without parts, and are one in essence, are the same being, all sharing the same divine perfection. And so I think I would, uh, I think I would affirm that. I think you would as well. Amen. I and that gives, that one. Yeah, and that gives some clarity, uh, bringing what we have talked about to a uh, to a good finality. Well, Rashad, I want to thank you again for being with us today. And you are, you're, you are a member of a church here in Jacksonville, which is yeah. far enough away from mine that I'll let you advertise it. Where are you at church, brother? Where's your church? In Grace Community Church in Mandarin. Uh, my pastor is Justin McKittery. Uh, we're over there off Hood Road, uh, right up the street from, from where we live now, as we know, we moved from over by the airport. Yeah. But um, so, yeah, we're over there. Um, lots of great people. I love it. I love everyone there. Uh, blessed to be there. All right. Well, if you are in Jacksonville and you're in that area of town, uh, look up that church, Grace Community Church, and uh, go find Rashad and shake his hand if you want to visit over there. But if you're on the north side, uh, closer to us, come visit us at Sovereign Grace Family Amen. Church. And again, Rashad, I want to thank you. I want to thank you and your family for giving you to me for this hour, giving you to our audience for this hour. We appreciate you giving your time and your talent to us as, a, as God has given that to you. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. Humbled to be here. Thank you so much. Yes, sir. And again, audience, I'm sure that this was a lot to take in today, a lot to think about, and I'm sure you may have some additional questions. If you have questions, please feel free to send them to me at calvinistpodcast at gmail.com. Also, if you're interested in getting the book, God in Three Persons, you can access that again on the website, 
sgfcjax.org slash books. You can get it in a PDF form. You can get it as an audiobook, or you can order a hard copy. And again, I want to thank you for listening today to Conversations with a Calvinist. My name is Keith Foskey, and I've been your Calvinist. May God bless you. Thank you.